first Aussie on Mars, I would step onto Mars and look around and then go, Crikey, look at that little rock. <laughs> <laughs> this new podcast and we're recording from a very different uh, studio today James isn't that correct that is right a very exciting place and it's been a, a big year for space I would say we've had the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope the DART project really saw its um, legs take off and now the Artemis 1 project so we're here with a very special guest Glenn would you like to introduce yourself to the audience today yeah hi guys uh, my name is Glenn Nagel I'm the uh, outreach manager here at the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex which is a part of NASA's Deep Space Network. So we're one of only three places in the whole world that provide the 24-7 two-way communication coverage with every spacecraft out across the solar system and beyond. That's, oh. <laughs> I, I must admit, as driving in, we're not used to seeing things like this. Um, bit of context, Sean and I obviously both engineers who work day jobs behind Excel and different plans, but we've never seen anything as crazy. So yeah. definitely thanks for having us here and... It's an absolute pleasure to be here too. And just pleasure. for context, we're currently recording in the visitor, the outreach and visitor center at the um, Deep Space Observatory. And to my right, about 100 meters, is one of the largest telescopes I've ever seen personally. Uh, can you talk us through what we're seeing outside this window right now? Yeah, we can see our big dish here on site. It's Deep Space Station 43. It's the largest antenna dish here in the Southern Hemisphere. And one of the largest antennas in the world used for communicating with spacecraft. Uh, whenever we're talking about sizes of antennas here, always referring to the diameter of the dish. Mm. So our big dish here, 70 metres in diameter, but across the curvature on the inside of the dish, it's actually 109 metres. So you could place an entire football field easily inside that dish <laughs> and still have plenty of room to sit around and watch the game. <laughs> uh, the antenna is about the height of a 22-storey building at 74 metres tall, and just the dish and its moving structure weighs some 4,000 tonnes. But we can move that 4,000, 4 million kilogram dish with better than hair width accuracy to any point in the sky to communicate with spacecraft hundreds of millions, billions of kilometres away. It's an amazing machine. It's about just coming up to 50 years old. That's 50 years old? Yeah. Jeez. And it's in immaculate condition. I guess it helps them on the coast as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, great engineers behind it. That's the key thing, you know, keeping that dish operating for as long as it has and doing all the upgrades that have happened over the decades. Yeah. So what materials are we talking that it's actually made out of? So the dish surface itself, uh, 1,272 aluminium panels fitted together with very high precision. Yep. So across that 109-metre uh, curvature, there's less than 0.26 of a millimetre variation. <laughs> So not much difference than a you know, sheet and a half of paper, um, liquor paint difference, you know. Yeah, wow. And uh, the main superstructure, steel, of course, and then uh, the base, we only talked about the moving structure being 4,000 tonnes, the base, concrete, <laughs> and it weighs about 4,500 tonnes oh. and is anchored into granite bedrock about another 11 metres underground. So, yeah, she's a mighty machine and does great work every single day. Um, while we're talking right now, it's actually communicating with a joint mission between NASA and the European Space Agency, a spacecraft called SOHO, the yep. Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. So it's a spacecraft that's been out there for 30 years studying the sun, just helping us learn a little bit more about our star in our solar yep. system. So in terms of like big missions that are actually going on, there's obviously that one going on. What are some other ones you can name top of your head that are really important to space industry right now? Uh, so obviously Artemis is the big mission at the moment, but we have currently about 50 missions out across the solar system and 
all of them are important in their own <laughs> way. Um, Mars is probably the busiest place in the solar system right now. So we have about 13 spacecraft at Mars at the present time, yep. eight in orbit and five operating on the surface. And probably the biggest mission at the moment on Mars is the Perseverance rover. Yes. This is the big one-ton car-sized vehicle that's been trekking around on Mars now for, if we look around at my uh, count-up clock on the wall, it's been there for 643 days, <laughs> 6 hours, 28 minutes and 33 seconds, 34 seconds, 35 seconds. Uh, so <laughs> and this is not the one that's saying happy birthday to itself, was it? No, or, that uh, was the other rover. That's yeah. Curiosity. Uh, where they actually programmed one of the instruments on board called SAM, the Sample Analysis at Mars, which vibrates sand and rock samples through its instrument to get it from one side of the instrument to the other. And the engineers thought it would be fun for its uh, first anniversary on Mars to send it a, a program so that it, as it buzzed and moved samples that it went... <laughs> and say itself happy birthday but hey as we always say if there's uh, you sing happy birthday on mars and there's nobody to hear to, there to hear it did yeah. it actually happen yeah <laughs> maybe this is something the engineers said that happened and never actually it's, it's, it's a pixar yeah. it didn't happen but yeah. in the version but I, of mars I, I feel like engineers would do this anyways like oh, they, absolutely. yeah it's yeah. like part of the ethos <laughs> we're not yeah. just nerds we do have a bit of humor at yeah. times yeah. so you touched on the artemis project and i think one of the main segues we wanted to lead into was um how important is Artemis to the aerospace industry and what was the, the drive to get it underway? Artemis is a, is a real game changer. It's, it's NASA's new big rocket, the Space Launch System, using the best of technologies that we've developed in space over the last 50 years, mm. uh, using engines uh, that were originally designed for use on the Space Shuttle, uh, using the solid rocket boosters, again, from Space Shuttle technology, uh, great improvements on the avionics and the electronics on board, uh, lowering the reliance on um, battery systems or systems that, uh, you know, as we did with Apollo, we're using the oxygen tanks to generate the actual energy in the spacecraft. Oh, and yes. now, of course, we're so much better with solar power yep. that, you know, we can fly these missions almost indefinitely just using solar these days. And, uh, of course, the great improvements in the spacecraft that will take humans back to the moon. So Artemis One is all about testing the rocket and the Orion capsule that will carry astronauts off to the moon. So on board that Orion capsule right now, there's three analog human mannequins on board, uh, or moonikins as we've been calling yeah. them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and the moonikins have sensors built into them to actually look at the, the forces of space flight that the astronauts will actually experience in the future on that Orion capsule and uh, the radiative environment of space as well. So we can look at those safely using those analog mannequins, mannequins, and uh, before we put people on board. So if this mission is all successful, of course, 2024, we'll put a crew on board, uh, do the same as Artemis One, which is just a, you know, an uncrewed test flight around the moon and back again, effectively, testing the, the whole systems of the rocket and the Orion capsule. And then if that mission with humans on board in 2024 is successful, it's getting back down to the surface of the moon in 2025, which is the really exciting times again it, it, for me as a you know a kid of the, the space age you know, yep. i was born in yeah. 1961 uh, at a time when we were first going to space first sending humans to the moon um and i remember very clearly all the excitement of that and remember watching those grainy black and white images on the tv screen and not realizing as a seven-year-old back then that you know here i'd be more than 50 years later now um, looking out my office window at the dish that brought me those original images and then think, here we are again, about to send humans back to the moon. It's become very, very real. So for the, the whole aerospace industry, 
there's been so much effort over so many years to get these vehicles or these multiple vehicles ready uh, in combination not only just NASA but of course the European Space Agency have provided the command service module uh, for this mission as well uh, to actually you know get the space get the capsule there uh, on its journey in the propulsion system so uh, it's really a continuation of the the great cooperation that happens in spaceflight and the innovation done by engineers and technicians uh, to fulfil the scientists' dreams of space exploration. So would you say anyway, we're sort of testing the boundaries of what humans can withstand when actually visiting now the moon? You know, first, first spacecraft since, what, the 1970s, I believe. This is now using new technologies and seeing how deep into space we can go. And yeah, I mean, we've come a long way from the types of you know, computer systems that we were using in the Apollo days in the 1960s. Mm. I mean, our, our mobile phone devices have hundreds of thousands of times more computing power in them than was used for the entire Apollo program, you yeah. know, where we had buildings full of computer systems and hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, it almost seems like landing on the moon next time will be done with an app. <laughs> you know? That would be a great little download, yeah. Yeah, that would be a great download. <laughs> moon landing, 1.0, yeah. Yeah, $1.29. Yeah, $1. with, like, your, <laughs> your IoT system That's on right. your device. Yeah, yeah. Cool. in-app purchases required. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine it's, like, actually take off is another $50? It's like, yeah. oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so you mentioned going between Artemis 1 to Artemis 2, you know, and the year gap in between them and trying to collect data and learn. How much do you think we'll be able to would change between, say, Artemis 1 and Artemis 2? Because obviously now you've got a plan for what you want to do, but based on the data you're collecting now, is there much room for things to change in, in terms of, I guess, both delays and also how the mission actually takes place? Yeah, there's always room for change. You always want to improve the systems that you've got. Um, as probably you know, uh, Artemis 1 was delayed a couple of times on the launch pad due yep. to, to fuel leaks happening, hydrogen leaks. Uh, we learn a lot about that with this vehicle. It's kind of interesting when you go back to, uh, you know, Apollo 11 when it launched, uh, there was a hydrogen leak, you know, when it was sitting on the pad and waiting to launch. And they sent uh, what was their red crew out to the pad at that stage, uh, saw the leak, found that they couldn't seal it off by tightening the, the bolts as they did on Artemis 1 just before its launch. And uh, what they did was they poured water over the seal, and of course that froze because it was really cold. Oh yes. through it, and right. basically that sealed, you know, ice sealed it, and uh, and they were able to launch. So obviously that's a bit of a dicey way to do it. Not yeah. the, not the best engineering solution. No. <laughs> it was pretty good in the sixties, um, but today, yeah, we'll, we'll, they learned a lot about the fueling process for this brand new rocket. It's not just. You know, it's not like filling the tank on your, your car. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really, really complex. So they, they learn a lot about doing that, uh, learn a lot about the avionics in the spacecraft, uh, about the insulation systems on the fuel tanks and so forth. Um, I obviously don't want to leave it out there when there's a hurricane next time. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's little things you learn just from a practical point of view, from an engineering point of view, that you can improve the next time you do it. And that's yep. the whole purpose of this test flight. You want to make sure that you've worked out all the bugs in the system. And it's not just the rocket and the capsule that we're trying to work out the bugs. It's the stuff we do on the ground, even here, at the tracking station, the communications. We're part of this test, of this flight, you know, doing the communications with the spacecraft. What are the complexities there? Um, as we, as we, you know, we're doing this recording now, it was only last night that for 34 minutes they lost contact with the spacecraft. Oh, right. And it ended up being, okay, what was the problem? And they go through all the scenarios. Was it a problem on the spacecraft? Was it a problem with the battery power? Was it a problem on the ground? Was it an antenna issue? 
Uh, it turned out to be an issue on the ground. Yep. And you know, we recovered communications yeah. pretty quickly. But that's the sort of thing that you're, you're part of the testing of. It's testing the people and the systems here on Earth. And you can always improve. And then you think, okay, what backups do we need? Uh, you know, how critical is a, a short loss of you know, communications? Obviously, you don't want that happening when you're about mm. to land on the moon or something. But, um, and, and just you know, putting the robustness in the system so that you're confident uh, before you put people on board, that this is all going to work perfectly. Uh, of course, even when you're putting people on board, you're still testing the system, the life support systems. Yep. You know, we don't need to keep the mannequins you know, <laughs> fed with oxygen or anything else, uh, but we've got to do that when there are humans there. Yep. So there's a lot of testing to do in that you know, area as well. So um, uh, as I say, look, this is a great testament to the people that are working on this. There's tens of thousands of people working on this program uh, including here in Australia, and to make sure it's successful. Yeah. And so in terms of the data, you touched on the mannequin, like re- recording, you know, was it the radiation that's being recorded yeah, by, by the mannequin? information and so, so on. That's, that's also like on, on the human side of it. And you talked about as, as we take off and losing signals, but what sort of data are we, are we getting from Artemis 1 that is really going to help us for not just the next two projects, but what we need to analyze and, and use for all projects moving forward? So the telemetry we're getting back from the spacecraft is analysing the overall performance of the spacecraft. So all the systems on board that uh, provide navigation and yep. communications with the spacecraft will be obviously testing the heat shield during the re-entry process mm. on uh, the 11th, uh, well, the very early morning hours of December 12th here in Australia. Uh, will be the last station in the world to have contact with the spacecraft <laughs> as it races down towards the Pacific. And, um, uh, yeah, just all the, uh, the avionics on board... Uh, and uh, even just, the, the, you know, well, we haven't got the life support systems on board, but, you know, the suits that the astronauts will wear uh, during these missions as well, how they perform in that environment, yep. um, how well they protect the astronauts, and uh, just the stress forces that will happen to this craft during uh, orbital manoeuvres as it goes in orbit around the moon, will the engines fire, stop, refire, yep. you know, you all these things going on. Um, there's thousands and thousands of steps that all have to go perfectly. And they have to happen in the right order as well. So even if, if that's the right steps, you can't have anything that's out of order. Is that, I guess, the general logic that the community understands is you can't have anything out of order. It has to be perfectly synced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is a second-by-second, sequence-by-sequence activity. Every minute of the day is filled. Uh, we're busy here uh, in our control room, you know, talking with the team at Houston in mission control there. Yep. Uh, they're constantly sending up commands to the spacecraft and checking on its, you know, different systems and uh, performing different manoeuvres and uh, testing all the thruster systems on board the spacecraft and making sure that its tracking systems on board, which it's kind of, it's almost flying itself, this spacecraft. Yep. You know, it's got to make sure that it is on course, that its star trackers are following the stars properly. So just like mariners at sea, you know, use the navigation by the stars, the spacecraft's doing the same thing. Uh, and of course, you you know, in the future you'll have astronauts there also doing the backup, making sure it's on course with you know doing the navigation work and flying the craft. So uh, they're even doing tests right now. I love this. They've they've put kind of a version of of Siri or Alexa on board the, <laughs> the spacecraft because the astronauts they want to, they want them to have more sort of hands off capability because they're going to be busy doing things they don't want a spacecraft full of switches everywhere that you've got to try to memorize you might just bump by accident yeah yeah so you know you put siri or you know alexa on board and you and you kind of go hey uh siri 
<laughs> and it's sort of like, uh, you know, can you connect us with Houston? You know, or can we do this communication there? It's actually or set up a WebEx for us or can you put these lights on and, and yeah. trying to automate, you know, it's like we try to automate the home of the future. We've automated yeah. the spacecraft of the future. We're definitely big fans of the whole Google and LX automation. A lot of our projects we control with Google. We love IoT, so yeah. that is um, very exciting. It's very handy having that hands-off. Hey, Google, oh, get me a beer. Google, yeah. get me a drink. And now this is taking up the space. No beer in space. <laughs> no, no beer in space. That's probably good. Because we always imagine, when you imagine spacecrafts in the interior, just an array, a matrix of different switches and buttons and lights that you have to know everything. If you can imagine it just being one little dashboard in front of you to do all of it and then assistance that is incredible yeah much more touchscreen technology on these craft these days as opposed to the, the tactile yeah, hundreds style, and hundreds of yeah. switches there'll still be switches and blinky yeah. lights i'm sure because you love those <laughs> but uh, it'd be handy like if you know if you're in your spacecraft and um you know disoriented or any way or you sort of like oh, need this emergency thing to happen mm. um to be able to go on to an automated system who could you know you know contact you know, Houston for us, or where is that switch that we need to flick? You know, <laughs> a computer that has that capability to communicate back with you. So, um, not quite, you know, HAL from 2001, a space odyssey, you know. Yeah, gets a bit, uh, <laughs> there's a bit of a fear in there initially <laughs> when you suggested it. But, you know, the idea that have that computer assistance on your craft, and that's uh, that makes eminent sense. You know, we do it on aircraft today, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're doing it on spacecraft. So all going well and everything successful with the entire Artemis program, is there a vision that in the future the bases we establish on the moon could match currently what is, say, somewhere in Antarctica in terms of population of researchers and scientists? Yeah, so there's a couple of steps to do here. So obviously we're going to do some first journeys down to the surface of the moon. You know, they'll spend maybe one or two weeks on the surface before returning to Earth. And then subsequent missions uh, with no crews will actually first probably put some infrastructure in orbit around the moon. This is Lunar Gateway that NASA and other agencies around the world are working together on, the same way as they work together on the International Space Station and constructing that facility. So putting Gateway in orbit around the moon to act as a, an outpost so that we can tr- take the Orion spacecraft, dock with that, transfer to the lunar landing vehicle, which at the moment is going to be supplied by SpaceX, uh, yep. And then in the future, other companies, commercial companies. And then those companies, um, apart from being the, the taxi or the Uber service for taking people <laughs> down to the moon, will also transport cargo in the future. And that's okay. to then build a base of operations on the lunar surface. And that will be down near the south pole of the moon, near probably near Shackleton Crater, which is one of these deep craters near the south pole of the moon that hasn't received sunlight in it for billions of years and where water ice has accumulated over time which is a really important resource if we are going to establish a a permanent base on the moon so the idea would be yeah it would be structured similar to what we do in antarctica a scientific base where many countries can come and work together and uh, live and work in space for longer periods of time and you know do excursions across the, the lunar surface uh, it's also going to have to be supported by gateway in orbit and probably uh, the moon's own satellite communication system and probably its own surface Wi-Fi system. That would be amazing. So <laughs> Wi-Fi on the moon, yeah. So it's going to be you know, really important. When there's so much infrastructure to build before we can live and work there for really long periods mm. of time. I mean, can you imagine... If, the, if we built a base in Antarctica, we had no way to communicate with it, no way to get a ship there, 
uh, you know, or they wouldn't last very long. So we've got to put that infrastructure in place first. Yeah. And in terms of tra- transporting cargo up there and establishing a base, often we talk about when you have a spacecraft and you take off, there's an escape velocity. Um, and with Earth, it's a lot higher than on the moon. So is there an opportunity to have spacecraft uh, essentially take off from the moon sometime in the future to effectively save fuel cost, energy cost? Might not necessarily need to take off from the surface of the moon, but you could probably build that infrastructure in orbit. And the thing that you need to get to your space, your rocket, your vehicle, is the fuel source. Yep. And the moon could be that fuel source with mm. uh, things like water, break down hydrogen, oxygen, use that as a fuel source and the oxygen to you know help a crew, uh, and uh, use the water uh, you know to grow food on a journey to Mars, say. Um, so putting it in orbit, that way you don't have to worry about the gravity at all. You just send your infrastructure from Earth, assemble it in orbit, and then bring up the fuel and off you go. <laughs> it almost sounds like that space elevator um, sort of idea of putting an elevator in space so you've got that platform to always take off from without having to worry about Earth's escape <laughs> velocity. But yeah, it's, um... and a space elevator at the moon in some ways would be easier than doing it here on Earth because you've got to deal with weather and yeah, uh, you know, yeah, finding yeah. somebody's backyard to build such a huge structure. You know, this, yeah. They're probably going, oh, not in my backyard. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, somewhat easier to do it from the moon. But uh, the moon, of course, with lower gravity, it is easier to get things off the, off the surface. So just automated vehicles, you could, you could throw a, you know, build a, some kind of linear accelerator on the moon, kind of like your, yeah, okay. you know, your fast train, but just have a track that sort of scoops up and have it shoot <laughs> off the end and take the cargo up. You don't even need a craft, just something to Jeez. hold the cargo. It'd be brilliant uh, to, to, get to get a, go up and dock. get a James Webb image of that happening in real time. That would be um, awesome. Be oh yeah, it's like we put live cameras on everything. We'll have pictures of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is is your plan to one day get up there as well? Give me a ticket. I'll go tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> be, uh, I would love to go to space. Um, the moon definitely would be, be amazing just to be on the moon and watch the the Earth, you know, in the skies above yeah. you. Um, but to Mars, yeah, that that that's kind of the dream I'd, I'd love it's, to go there i'm too old to probably ever get a chance to do something like that but yeah. you know i can dream about it yeah. <laughs> and, and one of our so our third podcaster patty unfortunately can't be here um he loves generalized questions and he loves you know a bit of humor as well one of his questions he wanted us to ask was is the people that would be going on artemis 3 is it people with a lot of money flexing saying look at me i'm going to the moon or is nasa <laughs> just grabbing a volunteer crew and going look here's you know He's an opportunity to go into to space. So NASA has already selected the 12 astronauts who are part of the Artemis program, six men, six women with incredible qualifications yep. in all sorts of areas of science, and uh, uh, they're all pilots, uh, all great experience. Uh, the actual crew that gets to go on that first flight of Artemis and then the next one to land on the moon, there's going to be a lot of competition between <laughs> right. those astronauts. Yep. But, no, we're definitely not going to make this, a, you know, a, a big world. brother or survivor. Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sort of voting people off the island to see as the crew left to go. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to be a very competitive bunch of people and uh, I'm sure all of them will be happy to whoever goes. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be all... all you know, happy for their comrades who do go, but I'm sure in the back... You need a bit of competition with this stuff, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it motivates it each other. innovation, yeah. Well, it was the same in the Apollo days. You know, they selected 24 astronauts as part of the Apollo program. Nobody knew who the final crew was going to be. Uh, and they all those crews had their own backups. And, you know, that happened during the course of the Apollo program, like on Apollo mm-hmm. 13, you know. You got your backup crew who, you know, 
members of, of them suddenly become the prime crew for, on Apollo 13, you know, so they're bumped up the line. And then, of course, one of the astronauts, you know, well, was told they were going to get sick a couple of days before the flight and had to be replaced by a total rookie astronaut, you know. So uh, there's, there's this competitive spirit, but things can mm. change, you know, through they're, they're one big crew and team. And they'll work together and make sure that goes and, right. And on the competitive nature, I, I did read somewhere we're going to be sending humans as deep into space as we have, I think, was it 40,000 kilometres out is the it, is it, is record? Yeah, so this uh, spacecraft, so Apollo 13 holds the record currently. Uh, Artemis is, well, as people are hearing this, will have broken it, uh, travelling about 70,000 kilometres beyond the moon. Uh, that'll be the furthest any, any human-rated spacecraft has ever travelled before. Yep. Obviously, we've sent robotic yep. spacecraft other places in the solar system. Um, and then uh, the spacecraft will also have the fastest re-entry of any spacecraft uh, before. Um, Good test for with heat crews shields. or without crews to test the heat shields. Yep. Um, so, yeah, they're pushing this craft to the absolute nth degree. Uh, the reason why we had to push so far past the moon is that they're testing a totally new orbiting system. Right. for this spacecraft, and it's called a Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. Uh, and it's a, it's a retrograde orbit, so it's a huge elliptical orbit around the moon and orbiting the moon in the opposite direction that the moon orbits around the Earth. And so that orbit, as you go further out and you do another oh, loop back again, yes. you catch up with the moon again as it's moving oh, around right. the Earth, and you keep doing this sort of slingshotted orbit yep. around yeah. the moon as the moon orbits around us. And then, of course, that orbit, unlike in the Apollo days where all of the missions orbited the equator of the moon. Yep. And so uh, that sort of limited where the Apollo astronauts could land. In Artemis, we want to be, go, be able to go virtually anywhere on the moon. Yep. So this near-retrograde orbit, which brings us back over the surface of the moon at different points in its orbit. Oh, that's and so we can actually land in lots of different places. And, of course, for these first missions, we want to land near the south pole of the moon where we've oh, never sent right. spacecraft before. So in a way, it's, it's, to, it's, more, it's a more efficient way of getting to different places of the moon without having to transport thousands and thousands fuel, of Ks yeah. and doing heaps of takeoffs from Earth. It's actually just using the natural orbit to get to different... Yeah, and we, using gravity of the moon can keep us in orbit virtually almost perpetually wow. with very little fuel to be able to make course corrections and to make the, the whole moon accessible. I think we've touched quite a bit on Artemis. Um, if we want, we can go back to the whole topic of DART because that's one Sean and I are, are very fascinated with. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one before we move over to DART because DART is a, a massive project in its scope. But I'd, one quick question on the naming of a lot of these. Oh, um, yes. I know you wanted to ask. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. So obviously the, a lot of the constellations in our solar system are named after the Latin uh, Italian style gods, Jupiter. But these all came from uh, the Greek gods. Yeah. Um, so like Zeus and of course the Apollo missions and then um, the older brother to Apollo being, uh, so older sister, sorry, to Apollo being Artemis. Why is it that a lot of the new spacecraft are named after Greek gods and not the Latin style? Romans, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean it, Artemis is just followed on as a natural step from yeah. Apollo. Um, being the, you know, Apollo, oh, sorry, Artemis being the goddess of the mm. moon, uh, also the goddess of animals and the hunt. So uh, sort of the equivalent of Diana in, uh, you know... In, uh, yeah, in, the, in the, other, the Roman style. In the Roman style. So, um, yeah, that's just following along as that tradition. 
But you get lots of spacecraft that these days aren't named after anything. You know, they're, they're either some really twisted acronym uh, for the, you know, the mission. Uh, you know, like we're going to be talking about DART. That's the double asteroid redirection test. I think that know. was like they started with DART and worked their way to double yeah. asteroid, to be perfectly but, honest. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think that's probably true that they come up with these, you know, great word. How can we make that word? Okay, S space W. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Come up with something like that. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's, I, I think just maybe it's part of the tradition of, of particularly for human space flight mm, yep. uh, that we stick with the, the Greek uh, gods in that case, probably. Oh, fair enough. I'm sure that'll change that. in the future. You end up going to the Norse gods eventually. We got Project yeah, Thor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the same way as we name the constellations and mm. the planets. Of course, we take names for Greek and Roman mythology. These days, we're taking from Polynesian cultures and. Uh, Australian indigenous cultures and a whole range of other things to name things out there. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot more inclusive these days. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, All right. So on Darton, for the general listeners and Glenn, please hop in if there's anything you want to add is it on a high level. Was simply getting a spacecraft into a very small meteor. Was, is that the correct technical term for this one? Or a small asteroid. object. A, yeah. a very small object and effectively changing its orbit and, and direction and, with speed. Um, is there anything you wanted to touch on from the general audience of what DART encompassed and why it was so important and the lessons it's already teaching us? I know it's a year of data collection we're getting, but in, in two months has it been? What have we sort of learned? So the reason for DART is that we wanted to have a better, we wanted to have a better chance than the dinosaurs had 65 million years ago yep. when they looked up and saw this comet or massive asteroid racing towards Earth and smashing into the planet and, you know, causing devastation and contributing to their destruction. Um, yeah, we don't want to wait for Bruce Willis to jump on a rocket and, <laughs> yeah. off and oh, save no. us, right? So, and you don't want to do what they do in the movies, you know, like Armageddon or Deep Impact and things like that, yeah. where they blow them up. No, just because, push it off course. Just yeah. nudge. It's all because if you blow these things up, you've just got lots of radioactive bits coming at you and that's just as bad. It's yeah. just so as the idea of DART is to actually just change the orbit of these objects. Uh, just give them a little nudge so they go merrily on their way and we all stay safe and happy here on Earth. So the DART mission uh, chose two asteroids, uh, Didymos, a big 780-metre-wide asteroid, and its little uh, moonlet, a little tiny asteroid, about 160 metres wide. I say tiny, but it's about the size of the pyramids of Egypt, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, which uh, little Dimorphos, the small asteroid, orbited around Didymos, the larger oh. one, and we knew precisely the time of that orbit and so this was a nice pair to say okay uh, that thing's got a very precise trajectory around the larger asteroid can we change its orbital speed around that asteroid can we deflect it and what the, uh, the science team was hoping for was about a 73 to 78 second change in the orbit yeah so we sent along the dart spacecraft a thing about the size of a two-door fridge weighing around about 560 kilograms, um, using solar power and uh, ion engines to be able to race towards the little asteroid at 6.6 kilometres per second and hitting it, releasing enough kinetic energy to see if we can change the orbit. And they did. They changed it not by 73, 78 seconds. They changed it by 32 minutes. It's, it's, and it's probably the one good time to lose um, signal. 
they, they say the, yeah. one, the one good yeah, time yeah, yeah. where if you lose signal in the spacecraft it's generally pretty bad but this was the one this time, the time you expected to lose it. astronomers yeah, were like yes just a good thing. If, you, if you had <laughs> reception still you go oh something's gone wrong yeah, yeah so <laughs> missing the asteroid wouldn't have been a good thing no. but part of the test of course was that we can't joystick these things you know for this event this is happening about 11 million kilometers away uh, so you know several light seconds from the earth so you can't joystick drive these things, you know. If you tell it, turn left, you know, it's well, it's too late to turn left. You've yeah. already hit something or not missed it or whatever you've done. Yeah. So we had to get the spacecraft to actually fly itself. So onboard artificial intelligence systems, uh, cameras, targeting systems, to be able to look at this asteroid pair. It knew first as it was flying towards it when it was still quite a distance out, it's not going to be able to resolve the two objects separately. So it says, okay, I've got to fly towards the bright thing in front of me. And then as the bright thing starts to resolve and you get these two objects separating from each other, it's then got to know which one do I want to hit? Do I want to hit the big one or the little one? Well, I've been told, hit the little one. Yep. So it first sort of targets the large one and goes, no, it's the little one I've got to hit. Oh, okay, target that and keep flying. Make sure that you, know, you made your choice right. Is it the left one, the right one, the left one? Oh, it's the right one on the right. Let's keep going, 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 and getting closer and closer and closer, staying on target to determine the size of it figure out the dead centre of it. So it had to make all of its own decisions doing that. At the same time, it's busy sending information back to Earth, sending a picture every second, which we were receiving right here yep. on the day of that impact. And, you know, we were all standing excitedly around the screens and uh, watching all of this. And, of course, we'd sent up the last commands to the spacecraft from the mission team. And uh, oh, no pressure to, we had a couple of federal ministers here oh, who wow. just decided the day before that they wanted to actually come and watch, <laughs> you know, so no pressure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and this spacecraft just did this amazing job, staying on target, flying towards the little asteroid. Yeah. We got the picture bigger and bigger and bigger, resolving, you know, building size boulders on the surface and then house size, and then car size, then people size, then bang. <laughs> Wow. And spacecraft literally was trying to send back the last picture as it impacted. So I remember it, seeing it. Yeah, it was this little beautiful. funny strip. So it it was just so perfect, and and to watch it as it was all unfolding, and, and just as you said, you know, uh, a mission suddenly going off, the, you know, the system, <laughs> you know, flat line is usually a bad thing. In this yeah. case, this was a great thing. So we were all. You know, yeah, this is great. And of course, you know, we could hear the mission control team uh, operating the spacecraft over at the Jet Propulsion Labs. You know, all yeah, you know, they're happy, and we're watching them on the screens. You know, cheering and hugging and high five. We had, of course, continue on with work because there's still a mission going yeah. on. Yeah, you know, we got a second spacecraft hanging back 100 kilometres, watching, watching it, yeah. all this happen and getting waiting, getting all its data back. So, uh, we have a thing that we call professional excitement. Yeah, yeah. I think all industries have it. Yeah, and some, some better than others. Yeah. You celebrate a bit. You've got your condensed time. All right, time to back, keep going. Back yeah, it. back to it. So, and that's an interesting one because you're talking about the precision. And I wanted to ask is what I wanted to ask is how much modeling goes into pinpointing exactly where the asteroid is going to be and exactly where the data had to take off and land it. Like how, how, how many months of, or even years of modeling was required to get that data, say, right, we've got it. And what was the percent error of that? So yeah, the modeling uh, took many, many years. Um, lots of ground-based observations uh, to really characterize quite precisely the orbit of this asteroid pair. Uh, to do, of course, more precision timing of the, the, the small asteroids orbit around the larger asteroid. Um, doing uh, shadow imagery, it's kind of interesting. You've got these objects out there, and uh, as they pass in front of stars, they cast a shadow. And you can have telescopes set up here on the Earth, 
um, spaced out maybe over you know 50 or 100 kilometers and they you can look at the shadow that of the you know that as the star blinks out you know by the asteroid passing in front of it and you can actually then determine really quite precisely the shape and size of these things right. and because uh, if you look through a telescope you know directly at the object um often these things are quite dark so they don't reflect a lot of light so it's really hard to build up models of their shapes even uh, but it was it was really quite interesting. So you do that with ground-based telescopes. You do this shadow imagery, um, build up your model. You know, you look at the time. Where does it blink off here? Where does it blink off at the next telescope and along the system? And you build up the shape models from that sort of thing. You can also, by looking at the shape models and then doing more observations, you can figure out the rotation rate of these objects. So how long does it take to rotate on its axis? How long does it take for the small one to orbit around the large one? You get all this information in place uh, with the, the orbit and the shape and the size and everything. So you bring all of that together and then you've got to program it into a spacecraft that can recognize all of that and build up its own targeting system to go, is that the shape of the object that I'm trying to hit? Is it the big, you know, sort of clumpy diamond shaped one or is it the big oval shaped one? and to figure out because you know when you're looking at these sorts of things is it like is that small and far away or is it large and close up yep. you know it's yeah. it's <laughs> you've got to have the spacecraft figure all these sorts of things out on its own pretty much um yeah we can send them out on the initial trajectory to get them out there on a rocket but then after that there's a, a lot of coding and seat. ai programming that goes into making sure it can do its Absolutely. own thinking because yeah. yeah you can't just rely on what a human's done say months and months before it actually goes into there and thinking that's definitely going to work. There's yeah. too much margin for error to oh, consider. Absolutely. And, and, yeah, the precision of it, I mean, to actually target this thing uh, and, you know, hit dead centre, I think actually there were something like, uh, I think they calculated there were about only 18 metres off dead centre, yeah. which on a, you know, on like a 160 metre wide asteroid, and uh, travelling at 6.6 .6 kilometres a second, that's not too bad. I think we can forgive it for I mean, a couple of metres off. I would say less than 0.0001% yeah. of yeah. that range, right? Yeah. And, and, and so something Sean and I actually discussed quite offline a bit is all these brilliant projects underway in every industry and how amazing engineers are. But unfortunately, you need funding, you need time to research these things and there's a lot of work that goes into it. But sometimes you're more pressured to do research on one thing than another. Would you say the Shelley Arbensk incident that happened back in back in 2013, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of drove this mission to sort of be sped up? Or do you think we still would be here today with DART underway? So, yeah, we've been looking at for many decades, you know, what we can do in these sorts of scenarios if something was, you know, hurtling our way. We, we already know that there are tens of thousands of asteroids out there. Uh, we know lots of those objects, uh, what we call near-Earth asteroids, uh, that some of them uh, are what we call PHAs, potentially hazardous asteroids, and these are asteroids that cross the Earth's orbit. And uh, so, yeah, there's been lots of thoughts and scenarios about what can we do with these things. With these things. Can, do you blow them up? Do you just strap Bruce Willis to the top of rocket and hope for the best? <laughs> do you um, land on them and uh, sort of use a an automated mining system to eat chunks out of it and spit those chunks out into space and act as sort oh, of a reaction no. motor to Check push it along. To push yeah. it out. Do you uh, land a spacecraft on it and uh, it unfurls a big sort of silvery sail over the surface and then use <laughs> light pressure from the sun to actually change its orbit over time? <laughs> yeah. uh, or do you use kinetic 
energy weapons to be able to just impact these things at high speed, um, create a lot of ejector from the actual object itself, and then you get your opposite and equal reaction, yep. um, pushing it off in the direction that you'd like it to go, not at you, but away from you. Yep. So, uh, yeah, DART was is one of a whole, well, was really the first full-scale test of one of those scenarios. Mm. Um, you know, there's still in the backs of everybody's minds, if we had something really, really big coming our way and we only had, you know, a week's notice, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, you'd probably throw every missile and bomb you had at it to try to do something about it, you know, and hope for the best on that one. Um, for something like the Chelyabinsk uh, asteroid object that entered the Earth's atmosphere over the town of Chelyabinsk in Russia, um, that was a bit of a wake-up call, I think, to particularly governments yep. around the world that these hazards, these threats are very real. It's kind of interesting to note that when the movies Armageddon and Deep Impact came out, and they came out pretty quickly from each other, um, that shook up a whole bunch of governments, surprisingly, because the, the people, the, oh, right. the public basically said, what if that was to happen? What would we do? Yeah. And the governments were like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Call Bruce Willis. Imagine. Um, you know, <laughs> they had, it was, and, and they thought, okay, well, we better invest in this. And there's a couple of reasons to invest in it because not just sort of like the we need to save the world type things, mm. you know, get our heroes out there. Um, but <sighs> Chelyabinsk is an object coming in while it was a big object and, you know, exploded in the upper atmosphere and sent a shockwave down and caused a lot of damage that way and injured about 1,500 people just from, you know, glass and shattered yep. buildings and things like that. Um, they realised if that thing had come down rather than just skim through the atmosphere, you know, and come straight down on the town of Chelyabinsk, that, that's a, you know, a place of a million people, that, that'd be a million people gone straight away. Yeah. But it's sort of like, what if we didn't realise that was an asteroid? What if that was misinterpreted as a preemptive strike? by some oh, other nation, oh, right. it would be like, oh, you know, what would be your reaction? Um, every day, the Earth's atmosphere is hit by 100 tonnes of natural space debris. Yeah. Most of it's just little tiny pea-sized stuff, pebble-sized stuff that comes in through the atmosphere. You see those shooting stars. Mm. But sometimes you get larger objects, these sort of bollard-type objects and, you know, maybe metre, 10 metre size objects. Now, most of it ends up in the ocean. But it was... Um, it's a while ago now, probably more than a decade, uh, it was an object that came in over the Mediterranean and air burst and sent out, you know, a thunderous, you know, roar that raised, mm-hmm. that could be heard right across the whole Mediterranean region. Uh, lots of countries heard it. But, of course, it showed up on, um, you know, radar systems oh, as this geez. sudden air burst of energy. That's the same sort of thing you get if you, you know, drop a nuke. Um what, what would have happened if it had just been a few hours uh, difference in time when that thing entered? It could have come in over countries like India and Pakistan. Oh, okay. You know, and this was at the same time when they were having a whole bunch of, you know, issues there on the border. Yep. What if that was seen as a preemptive strike by those two nations? What could have happened? So government could have sat a up. Lot of controversy, yeah. Yeah, so government sat up and went, hey, we better sort of think about this a bit more because this is not just a, a threat to, you know, wipe out humanity from some object from space. 
this could set up a situation for an accident where somebody overreacts and pushes the button. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, putting better systems in place to recognise these things. And actually, uh, it was just in the last couple of days that, uh, you know, we tracked an object um, about, I think it was a metre in size, roughly, maybe slightly less, um, and we knew precisely when it was going to come into the atmosphere. And mm. it, was coming, it came in over parts of the US and Canada, it was seen. And uh, they could time it precisely and knew exactly when it was going to enter. So we need to do more observations on these things, not just go out and send spacecraft to deflect them and do things like that. We, we need to do that to understand how that system could work. But we need to do more observations of what's out there to know what's coming our way. Nobody knew that the Chelyabinsk asteroid was coming. Yeah. You know, it was coming from a somewhere direction, a whole direction we weren't even looking. Actually, mm. on that same day, everybody was busy on the other side of the planet looking the other direction at an object that we did know was going to just pass the, by safely the Dw- Earth. Duende or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it? yeah, so it was just like... Uh, maybe we should look in all directions, folks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which is, you know, going back, it's kind of sad that the motivation for government was preemptive strikes. Yes, yes it's, it's, it's definitely fair to think of, but really the, the way I see the success of DART is eventually it's inevitable. Once in a few million years, an uh, uh, apocalyptic asteroid will hit Earth. I think it's a given. It's going to happen and it's going to end that population. Now, when that does happen, when it does, whenever it does, someone's going to look back and go, well, what was the first bit of research that was successful in us building the technology that we deflected that? You will always go back to DART. You will, you will go always go out and go, that was the first success. And that's up to me. You got to think for the long term. You can't think in the short term, which sounds like is what the governments did in that, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. But it's a good thing that they did um, because it really did help to spur the need to actually start thinking about the processes and to get a mission like DART going. You know, DART would have maybe never have gotten its funding to go and do its job had things like Chelyabinsk yep. not happened, you know, and other asteroid, you know, objects that have entered the atmosphere over time yep. uh, and, you know, scared everybody, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, like, going back to Armageddon, let's say, theoretically, we've got a Texas-sized, uh, <laughs> Texas-sized asteroid heading to Earth. We know where it is. It's, let's say, we know it's going to hit in a year. What is that ideal range for a, a Dart Star project and how big does it need to be to nudge it off course, like how far away do we need to hit it? Uh, like theoretically, as soon as you can, as far away as it can be, <laughs> to give yourself maximum time. Because if something went wrong, you want to have a second shot at it or a the third shot at it. So, yeah. um, this is what I'm saying. You know, doing more observations out there uh, of what potentially could come our way. Um, it, at the moment, there's less people around the world keeping an eye out on what could be out there than currently works in your local McDonald's store. Well, Right? Uh. So, and these projects are not particularly expensive. In fact, a lot of amateur astronomers are contributing to our observational work. That's cool. And building up our database and our knowledge of the objects out there. But, uh, you know, if we did have something a year out, Texas-sized, racing towards yeah. us, um, to, to mount a mission fast enough and to get, you know, something built in time mm. to get it out there, I mean... Even at best pace, I reckon it would still take you know the, almost the better part of a year to get Jeez. a mission off the ground because one, you've got to get funding. 
I mean, if you, I mean, you guys, I'm sure have seen the, the movie Don't, Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, 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 had, we, had a, we had a podcast literally we about reviewed that movie. it because sometimes we do movie reviews on scientific movies, and that was that was yeah. one of them. Yeah, I can tell you, working in this field, that was frightening realism. Oh yeah, yeah, You know, just everything from the the, the way the media looked at yeah. it uh, to the way governments might have looked at it. Business it's was true, like, yeah. we can make money out of this, so let's uh, like throw out all our plans <laughs> and just mine it for gold or I mean, something. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a great fun film, but there was a lot of elements to it which you know ring quite true and uh but i mean it's like you know saying that you know that those um you know asteroids and things entering the atmosphere and everything kind of woke governments up to a bit more to the the need for this and even the movies you know helped Mm -hmm. to sort of make them go oh maybe this is more important um but for you know for something like uh you know those sorts of armageddon style scenarios uh you would probably i think find that there could be an interesting turn of events might be not just one country going and saying okay we'll save the day Mm. but everybody getting together and saying let's do it together let's actually give a stuff like you know hey this country we've got a we've got a rocket ready hey we've got a payload impact hey we've got the targeting system and let's put it all together real quick let's not worry about the dollars healthy competition that's what you need yeah Yeah. everybody helps each other and uh, you know and we get something out there faster so you know you know huge disasters you know pending disasters like that could maybe be a good thing for humanity <laughs> let's try to avoid that scenario of course yeah. if we know about these things far enough ahead the more we track them the more we observe them the more we send spacecraft like uh, osiris rex which went off and collected samples from an asteroid called bennu bennu is one of these potentially hazardous asteroids um you know it's it's got a potential in the year 2156 to get maybe a little too close to home yep. knowing about it now by getting samples from it and knowing about its composition mm. so we can figure out its density, density yeah and we can then think well how much energy do we need to impart on this object to well. nudge it out of the way so you know we do these sorts of things even japanese missions like the higher two hayabusa missions uh and then missions that have gone to not just asteroids but comets and uh, you know landed on their surface and doing all these sorts of things and then more ground-based observatories you know just looking out there and even the work we can occasionally do here at the tracking station when we're not tracking spacecraft or you know, doing some in our spare time some radio astronomy we do some near-Earth asteroid observations. We can use our dishes like a sonar system yep. to bounce radio signals off them, have another dish somewhere else receive that reflected signal and build up a radio image, like a sonar image of these asteroids and know more about their size, their rotational rate, help to build up more information about their orbit. And actually, for Didymos and Dimorphos, we didn't know about Dimorphos, the little asteroid, until those radar observations were done and they realised, hey, there's a second little asteroid there. And look at it. And these, it's orbiting around it. <laughs> this hey, is this probably a better be, target. You know, yeah. So that, you know, that, that sort of work needs to be done on, on lots of different levels, lots of different organisations. Um, you know, I'm sure the private sector will need to get involved you know, as yep. well, you know, the ones that are willing to take a little bit more risk. The um, ones with a bit more cash too. <laughs> and sometimes a bit more cash, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so we've talked technical for quite a while. So I've got another general question from Paddy that he wanted to ask. Um, so the word by word, the famous words uttered on the original moon landing were, and I quote, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. If you were to go to the moon, whether it be a mission or a future, future holiday, what are the first words you will quote on the moon? <laughs> I love that question. Yeah. It'd be good if he was here today. I've, I've actually not thought about what I would say if I stepped onto the moon, but I certainly 
thought about what I would say if I stepped onto Mars. Will oh, that do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. If, I, if I was the first Aussie on Mars, I would step onto Mars and look around and then go, crikey, look at that little rock. <laughs> <laughs> And I think the whole world would get a bit of a laugh out of that, and a bit of a you know nod to Steve Irwin. Yeah, for sure. And um, and the and the world would sort of get a bit of a smile and a bit of a chuckle. I think that would be the best first words to say on another planet. You just sort of, other than that, you just sort of do the classic sort of ah, and then cut the mic. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> that is such a larrikin thing. Yeah. That's brilliant. But. Um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see. I quite often challenge school students when I'm talking to them to think of, you know, what are the first words you would say if you, you're going to step on the moon or step onto the surface of Mars? And they come up with some really interesting things. Okay. Sometimes it's just the, you know, the crazy thing saying, well, I'm here and you're not. Uh, <laughs> or uh, or just like, wow, that was a long trip. And, or, you know, yeah, they, yeah. Got, they got some crazy good you imaginations. Know. But sometimes they'll come up with something really inspirational and just say, you know, that it's a another one small step for all of us, you know, and try, yeah. they try to be more inclusive and of course. not get trapped in the whole man, mankind thing. You know, mm. we've kind of moved on a bit. Um, kids are actually, they're, they're, their minds are so wide and so open uh, to so many different things. They, they, you know, these kids that I talk to, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, every, every other day I'm talking to them, and uh, the questions that they ask and the, the enthusiasm for which they have for things like space exploration you know space is in the big three you know the kids mm. love uh space dinosaurs <laughs> and anything that blows up <laughs> i was gonna say trains <laughs> but yeah yeah <laughs> explosives but, sound cool. but imagine yeah. we we need like we've got shows like bluey on television right now what we need is a tv show about space traveling dinosaurs <sighs> that blow things up that, that would be the greatest show of all time yeah. you can imagine you know? the generation of like the the industry in space after this generation flux through like oh we're definitely coming through we want to like I've been studying this for like twenty years now on TV ah yeah. oh, it'd be beautiful yeah and and kids take these things um, as commonplace yep. you know mm-hmm. when when I was their age you know it was it was amazing we're going to space and oh my, every kid wanted to be an astronaut and a rocket scientist and you know they were the rock stars of their time. And and now you've got this generation out there that kind of take these things for granted, you know, space and space technology and the technology they use every day is just common. You know, they don't even think of a time or they don't know of a time before mobile phones existed and, you know, having their tablets and watching, you know, live streaming from something and everything else. And uh, so they're very comfortable with the technology, but what they can see is where they can go with that technology. Yep. What they can do with it, how they can apply it, and not just as a communication tool to play games, but um, something to do actual science and exploration with. Because again, like all of us, you know, kids love to explore. Well, that's right. Um, yeah, and you can write even write computer codes from your phone now. Like there's apps you can get where you can code from your phone and upload yeah. it to somewhere. The idea of being able to amplify on IoT systems and be able to do that with potential spacecraft. Um, blows my mind away. You don't need yeah. crazy PLCs and big bits of kit to do that. Mm. IoT is actually taking over. We're seeing that yeah. quite yeah. rapidly. I was remember one friend's um, was telling me about his son who's in grade two learning Python, Python coding yeah. at that age, which is incredible. Like they are, <laughs> yeah. like Len's spot on. They're so impressionable at this young age. And if you can yeah. teach them this language, imagine what they'll be able to do in 10, 20 years time. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. It's they, 
they actually just take it in, especially when we get them really quite young. Uh, they do build in these things as just languages in their head mm. and it becomes a natural thing and then they can't understand then why people don't think like that. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. this, this is literally our, our mantra is, is for engineering dads is like, you know, yeah. the little group we've got is we're trying to get that mindset of like, why don't you? You can. You can like, you, you see the world slightly differently. You, you, you don't yeah. need a degree or a piece of paper yeah. to do it. You just need to give a crap really like yeah we're doing a project at the moment with young engineers canberra and they are actually building for us uh two one quarter scale mars rovers it's like the perseverance rover and it's a fun little project as the uh you know that we've given them the the plans from online on this uh and they've they've been building this thing it's absolutely beautiful um, you know, they've engaged doing 3D printing, uh, you know, quite high resolution 3D printing. Uh, they've developed all of the, the drive and the steering system, the rocker bogey system that the rover actually used. They've worked all this out. Uh, they've been able to, uh, they've shown us demonstrations of this thing driving and it's just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Mm-hmm. They've put cameras in there. So, and the camera will live stream back to your phone. They've written the controls using Python code to yep. have a little app on the phone to be able to do the driving for the rover and to steer its head around. They're building the robot arm for us. Uh, wow. And, uh, and they're going to put uh, a little laser light in it so it looks cool. Yeah, you <laughs> need the LEDs, aesthetic. You need some LEDs as well, yeah. yeah. And, it's, um, yeah and it's just a beautiful project that these, these kids were just amazing when we saw them and they're just sitting there and they're just you know, heads down and in their computers and typing away because and creating it's, this code. It's, it's honestly therapeutic doing that, yeah. 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 yeah, it was beautiful to watch and really engaging. And it's a project that we're going to uh, do more of and expand hopefully nationally and give students a chance to build robots to go off and explore. That's so. incredible. You, Yeah, I think you're just pushing a lot of people into the STEM field with this program. That sounds just amazing honestly thanks uh glenn for the discussion it's been really good to talk to you and thanks for having sean and i here today um it's been a pleasure and i'm glad you come and see us uh, on a beautiful sunny day in canberra as we explore the universe and beyond (laughs) see you later thanks for listening to see more engineering dads content like this head to our youtube facebook instagram and tiktok and i'll link below to see our other projects have a good one